Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mental Health TV. Uh, we've got a fantastic panel for you tonight and it's a really interesting thing to be talking about, actually. We're going to be talking about Repair Project, which is reducing pre-registration, attrition and improving retention. So before I introduce you to our guests, um, just a quick explanation. Um, Vanessa's not able to be with us tonight, so big wave to Vanessa and see you soon. And Dave is also lurking, so he's been doing he's going to be doing social media tonight, but he won't be on screen. Um, so if you want to join in, and we would really, really love to hear any comments or questions that you've got, please can you, if you're on Twitter, uh, use the hashtag MHTV and absolutely ask our fantastic panel anything, any comments you've got, or else you can join in on the Facebook Live um, stream as well. So you can do that. Uh, we'll also be tweeting out some of the fantastic resources um, that the team has got for us as we go through. So let's introduce the panel. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I can. Thank you very much, Nikki. So, um, hi everyone. I'm Michelle Simon. I'm a therapeutic radiographer by background um, and currently working as a practice educator facilitator, so looking after all the students. Um, and then the other part of my role, which is obviously more linked to this, is a repair fellow for the London region, um, where I work closely with Scott. Yep. Tell us about yourself, Scott. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Scott Topping. I am a mental health nurse and a senior practice development nurse. And then with my other hats, I'm a repair fellow uh, for HE London. So let's get stuck in actually find out what is repair and what's the, what's the issue? Why, why has it come about? Um, so I'll go through the boring stuff first, probably. <laughs> um, so just for those who don't know, um, it started in 2015, it came from the Department of Health mandate, um, just because attrition was a key issue, basically. So through reports um, throughout the way, so 2017, 2018, um, we had 15 recommendations from it of how we were going to tackle this attrition and improve retention, basically. So over the years, um, there's been some legacy projects, there's been lots of fellows um, that have worked and obviously implementing these 15 recommendations. Um, and here we have 2021, um, where we're also looking at obviously the impact of COVID survey um, and just really tackling what is the issue with attrition, basically. What can we do to reduce it and just keep our students? Um, so it's really their voice we've always wanted to hear is at the forefront of repair um, and working obviously with the placement providers and HEIs. Um, we just want to tackle the issue. Does anything you want to add to that, Scott? Um, get a bit more understanding about what, what professions we're talking about and what the scale of the issue is, maybe? Mm, absolutely. Thanks, Nikki. So, repair, the, the original repair study was around nursing midwifery and therapeutic radiography. Um, and then as it's extended, it's moved across to all AHPs as well. Um, and I think it's important to, to just say that we know pre-reg courses are really hard. Mm. And I think everyone always knew that attrition was an issue um, but we really didn't know what is the actual issue and what can we really do about it and I think the repair study really bottomed that out and allowed everyone to have input um, into what can we really do to help and what are kind of the, the tangible interventions we can put in place to help people. Um, probably worth mentioning as well so me and Michelle are fellows for the London region and then there's fellows in each of the regions across England so there's between one and three across the seven regions and that we all kind of work together on implementing the recommendations. So what are we thinking, what are we sort of talking about then in terms of what's the state of things now? How many people are we losing? Do we know what's causing that loss? What's causing the attrition rate? And is it getting worse? 
we're both like shall we shall we (laughs) um so I think obviously COVID has had an impact Mm -hmm. um so when you're looking at rates obviously you've got your pre-COVID attrition rates and it's hard in the sense of through the reports and what you read of why people are leaving and obviously you've got that kind of cultural change within it um and so looking at rates we had they are going down which is always a good thing especially London um mm. our rates are something to kind of be proud of that we are lower in that sense but um I think obviously COVID has had an impact and we still need to fight although they are going lower um mm. this is something we need to keep an eye on and what we can do um, mm. and then I think it's also understanding the why because mm. for me like we've got all this data but then the, the data tells a story and actually mm. understanding what are all the whys behind this and why are people really leaving the course and, mm. and what's actually going on for them? Because mm. it's it's all well and good saying, oh, we, if we had 50 start and then 40 leave, well, what's really happened for those 10 people and, yeah. and how can we put things in place to support them? Because mm. I think what, it's... What information do we have about that then? Why are people leaving, do you think? So there was 15 recommendations from the original repair study and then we focus on around three or four each year. Um, and it looks at kind of the journey from pre-enrolment to the early career framework. Um, so obviously you'd have pre-enrolment before when maybe someone's thinking about training to be a nurse or a midwife or AHP, um, the actual journey of their, their training, um, mm-hmm. the bit when they qualify, um, which would repair termed as the flaky bridge, um, and then the early career framework as well, mm. and actually putting that all together because it's not that someone just does their course and then that's it. it there's a whole whole array of things which happen through there and making sure that there's all those support bits through there. So the bits we're focusing on this year are around the year two students, mm. um, the impact of COVID and how we can support students with that. And Michelle, can you remember the other one? <laughs> I feel like I've put you under a tremendous pressure. You have, now. yeah. Test. Question time. My, oh, the question, Scott. Um, my mind has gone blank. So the other thing um, I think you've been looking at as well is around sharing best practice. Yes, well. that makes sense. That makes sense. So for people who are maybe aren't um, necessarily in sync with the kind of way that students have been working, the first years um, when COVID started, not this March but last. Support the early stages of the year two mm-hmm. that are now currently year two. So they've basically had the majority of their teaching um, swamped really by this, and they've had a very different experience to students previously. So most um, uh, health and social care courses were partially in a university setting, partially in practice. Um, and then you can imagine all the university settings have, have basically gone online. Um, people have had lots of different types of work. Um, really impacted by COVID and they've had children at home. It's been very difficult for them to study. And then they've also been going into practice, some of them and some of them not. So sometimes people have gone into practice, sometimes they haven't. But and where they have gone into practice, it has been like a genuinely frightening experience, I think, for, for a lot of students, because a lot of the traditional support with everyone's best one in the world have been have been a model at times for them. And it has been a very different experience. And they've had to fight quite hard, I think, to get to the same level of where previous people were at the end or where we are now at the end of year two and it is a a real a real challenge and I think a lot of students 
had um, had not considered. Well, in the same way that staff had not considered that actually going to work could be a fatal experience, and it has been for some of our students. I think it's really important to to recognise that as well. In that, not only has their expectations around teaching and learning not not been as we'd hoped for them, but also they've experienced a lot of the kind of frontline working as well as trying to hold down studying, and that is it's a real challenge. So it's not a surprise to see that they have had, this has had an impact on people, but I guess it's a bit early to say what the overall trend is going to be. Mm. And I don't think any of us can underestimate just how hard that's been for the students. Mm. Mm. Um, Definitely. And I think, like you say, with the best will in the world, no one could have predicted what we've gone through and what we continue to go through. Um, mm. And also we still need students on those courses and, and to qualify, but we still have to make sure they qualify and feel safe and competent to do so. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's just really hard for them. I don't think we can't put enough support in place at the moment for them. Sorry, I was just going to say, it's just the resilience they've shown throughout kind of their mm. student journey. And mm. I don't think they quite realise it as well, because you have a lot of webinars and forums that you listen to them say that mm. they don't want to be labelled as the COVID cohort um, because yeah. they might not have had as much clinical placement as previous um, cohorts. But actually, the experience they've had and what they can bring to their future learning and just careers in general, I think they should be proud of as well. Um, yeah. And I don't think a lot of them realise that. So mm. it's a big thanks to all that they're doing, yeah. to all the students, um, mm. because... I think they're being quite hard on themselves because it is a different learning experience that they're having and mm. it's just to know the support is there and obviously we're trying to listen as much as we can and kind mm. of implement anything they think may help so. yeah definitely so you did say a, a phrase which i think some people might not be familiar with um the slightly ooky but but important flaky bridge mm -hmm. so can you explain a little more what is that what do we what do we mean by that so the the flaky bridge is so when someone is at the end of their course and qualifying, if you can think of that as a bit of a bridge moving in, so we call it transition to transition into professional practice. Mm. We like to use all the most complicated words. <laughs> um, and that bridge, essentially, it is not as well supported and as robust as we'd like. Um, hence, it's a bit flaky. Mm. Maybe, maybe a not sturdy bridge. Yes. <laughs> um, and actually, the, the things like preceptorship and support when someone qualifies, all of those things bolster that bridge and make mm. sure we can support students through that journey. Mm. So that leads us. Oh, I'm sorry, Nikki. I was just going to say what we didn't mention earlier was the other one where our focus was our early career framework. So obviously, mm. preceptorship sits within that. Um, and obviously is linked to the flaky bridge, um, but it's that whole framework. So mm. not just focusing on your competencies and actually it's the well-being of that person who's transitioning from mm. a student, obviously to a qualified member of staff, and it's everything that goes with it. So yes, you've mm. got your mandatory training, um, mm. but it's about their well-being too. Um, so that can all sit within this early career framework, which is mm. another of our focuses. Mm, absolutely. So that makes a lot of sense, actually. It feels like quite a cohesive sort of approach. So we've talked about the kind of like bumpy journey of students through through education at the moment. Um, and then, I mean, I can remember my first <laughs> few days on the ward. There's nothing more terrifying, frankly, than when someone says nurse and then you look around for someone and you realise they mean you yep. and there's nobody else there. It's an absolutely terrifying experience. 
Um, and I think with all the sort of changes in services and the movement around and the new policies, everything being updated to be COVID friendly, it feels a lot more changeable, I think, for a lot of people. So that is quite a frightening and it's exciting because, you know, it's what you've trained to do and trained to be. But it also, I think, can be a little alarming, that, that, that crossover part. And also the taking responsibility is is something that you do in your head. And then when it's real, it feels very different. I don't know yeah. if that was the same experience for you guys, but, you know, um, when I, I was trained by people who constantly said really terrible things to me, like, um, if you do that when you're qualified, you'd be struck off. And you'd be like, oh, God, yes. oh, God. And it was like nothing. I'd like, I'd maybe put some milk in something. <laughs> and I don't think actually that I could have been struck off for. But it was always that kind of like, when this happens, that's when it's going to be real. There was always yeah. that kind of big jump feeling. So it, despite the fact you know when you do these trainings if particularly for a bse you have three years of sort of getting into the rhythm of that type of work and, and being supported and understanding the system it, it, despite all that it still feels like a big leap you mm. know the first day that you get given the keys or the first day that you get um, to make a decision that's actually really quite serious and i think until you get used to carrying that way it does feel quite alarming and i don't know if anyone else has any opinions on that yeah, and I still vividly remember that the first day I got my pin. Um, so I was a registered nurse and I was given the keys for the, for the meds and they were like, you're nurse in charge. And I was like, oh, <laughs> um, it's it's all on me and it's all my shoulders. And then yeah. and patients come to me asking all the questions. And like you say, where's the nurse? And they were like, oh, Scott's down there. Um, yeah. And actually, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. Yeah. But also looking back, I think that was really important because it reminded me just how much it meant to me that yeah. what I did, the journey that I've been through when I qualified and actually mm. if I wasn't that bothered and I wasn't so worried about it I'd be a bit worried as well mm. for myself um but I had so many of those conversations when oh it's your pin number you'll lose it if you're not careful um and it's it's a double edged sword isn't it yeah. but yeah. and it, it'll always be scary I think and yeah as long as we can make sure people are supported and they know where mm. to put that those feelings. Mm. Definitely, definitely. It's a very strange thing, isn't it? Because I think even knowing that other people have been through it or go through it or there's somebody else there makes that experience something that brings you together instead of makes you feel isolated. So I think when you were talking, Michelle, particularly around this kind of scaffolding, what does that look like? What does it mean? What do we do? Um, in terms of transitioning or just mm. throughout there transitioning transitioning and then moving into that early career um it's I think it depends on the profession because I've come to know that within the nursing field I think in comparison to some of the AHP professions and midwifery we're a little bit behind in that sense I think you guys have a great structure um and we are catching up with it in the AHP mm. world um because it's that initial okay, I've got my registration now, what do I do? Um, mm. And yes, you're qualified, um, but actually there's a lot more support that people don't realise that's out there. Mm. And that's obviously where our preceptorship kind of steps in. Mm. Um, and I just think obviously you've got the best practice frameworks. Um, there's so many resources out there that actually you've got the support, you just need to tap into it. Um, mm. And yeah, I think we are catching up slowly um, within the AHP world. Um, but um, it's, yeah, I think perceptorship is so big um, and it's always going to be that support that students 
not students, newly qualified um, members of staff um, can have and mm. are entitled to, but it's also the preceptors um, that also need that support because obviously mm. we're meant to be helping the preceptees, but if you're a little unsure on what you can give them, we need to provide that support to the preceptors as well. Um, so. I think that's a really interesting point as well because I mean, I'm going to sound like a dinosaur now. When I started, there was lots of people at that kind of mid-band. Yeah. You know, people stayed in post for 10 years. So people would be a band five for a long time. Mm-hmm. When I say band five, I think we all know I'm secretly referring to D&E grades, everybody. <laughs> That's how old I am. <laughs> but um, but the, the people were, we had like a level of, of competence and, and real skill of people that had been in the job for a long time and, and they knew when not to panic. They could hold the line. They'd be like, You'd be like, oh my god, no, it's <laughs> fine. And that that really, really helped. And I think one of the things that's quite complicated now is even preceptors are often relatively newly qualified, and that has its benefits, doesn't it? Because they remember what it felt like, and their practice is, you know, very uh, current still. But it, it is a different feeling than it was. So it's not surprising that there's that layer of double need almost. Yeah, and it's like obviously you've got buddy schemes as a student, so we're mm. learning from each other. Everyone remembers what it's like to be a first year. You just mm. kind of sit on your placements, like, where do I go? What do I do? Am I meant to be mm. here? Um, and it's the same as you progress. So year twos can help year ones, and so on and so forth. And even when you're qualified, you've got your senior, um, whether it's band six, seven, um, and everyone just learns from each other. So I think. Mm just sometimes forget the band ins. Actually, it's about yeah. what can I provide and what can I teach um, mm. to your yeah. staff members, really. And that's why I think buddy schemes are also really helpful, because un- unless you know those really basic things on a placement, like where is the toilet? Where can I make mm. a drink? How on earth do we expect people to be able to focus on getting their competencies signed off and all, all the mm. other things that they've got to do on their placements? Mm. I think sometimes we have a lot of embedded rules on particularly award settings and things like that, that people don't know till they do the wrong thing. And you only need to make a couple of mistakes to just feel like that's it. I'm just going to sit quietly for the rest of the day. I can't keep keep hold off. And it is a very weird thing that we do to um, health and social care students, particularly in that we have them very aware that they are constantly being assessed. And, it, and it's great that we do that because it allows people to have learning all the time. But it, it it's very difficult, isn't it, to have your first day every day almost, you know, and that's what it what it feels like. And I, I, I think you get used to it, but it is quite a strange way of expecting someone to stay calm and take in information when you know that everyone you speak to could just refer back to your to your to your practice lead and, and just say this is what's going on with them. Well, they've they got they got that wrong, yeah. and that that can be quite a challenge because you're constantly under observation. How do you? Yeah, how do you find your feet? How do you move forward under that circumstance? Yeah, yeah. it's a real challenge. And I think because, uh, particularly in some of the nursing courses, I'm not sure about AHPs, I'm sure Michelle will say, but the placements can be so short, actually mm. you, your whole focus is on just getting your competencies signed off when actually, like you say, that belongingness within a team and where you can get comfortable to, to say maybe the more difficult things, mm. um, it's... It's tricky. There's, there's no easy answer, I don't think. Mm. So if somebody wants to get involved in a buddy scheme, how do they do that? How would they go about it? Um, so Cattle Nurse, to get it. Um, Cattle Nurse have done some really good work on that. And they released a handbook called the Year 2 Student Nurse Handbook as well, which is, is really great and mm. can be applied. Uh, I guess the principles can be applied across all professions as well. Mm. And that, that talks about buddy schemes as well and gives some kind of... Uh, 
helpful tips on how you can set them up. And there's also a really nice handbook in there for students, written by students, Fantastic. of, of how, how to look after yourself during your training. Yeah. All right, so thinking about that, we'll, we'll definitely be tweeting those things out because I think that's really supportive and helpful. Um, what sort of things are in the handbook exactly so that people can get a feel for what it is? You remember because you, you, oh you did write it, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Now you're testing my knowledge. Um, yeah. So I know in the student handbook, um, there are things in there like recipes um, mm -hmm. as well, like how to make sure you're well nourished and well hydrated, mm -hmm. how to give yourself space, how to try and leave placement at placement and mm -hmm. be a bit more boundaries with your time. Mm -hmm. um, in the student support handbook, there's, there's things about buddy schemes as well. Um I can't remember the other bits. <laughs> I remember. I actually I did see it because I remember I nicked one of the recipes, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> so thank you guys for writing that. That was really handy. <laughs> but I think there's something what I liked about it particularly was it's a holistic approach. You know, it's not just about how you learn or how you do this. It's about understanding the, that students are people. Yeah. The people going through a really massive change and a really massive journey, working really hard. And, and also nobody is the full package, are they? Some people have, have a lot of skills in practice, but you know, the kind of theory side is a real challenge and it makes you feel exhausted, you know, just trying your hardest, and then maybe the grades aren't where you want them to be. And then other people, you know, have a kind of natural gift for academia, but actually find the kind of process of being in services quite challenging at times because it is mm -hmm. challenging. Yes. Yeah. And, the, and there's no one intervention which is going to help everyone. But actually, if we can make sure that there's lots of different places of support and, and things like mm. that out there to support students, like you say, then we can mm. think about them as mm. people, which we all are just trying to make things yeah. a bit better. If anyone remembers their days of just being referred to as the student. Oh. Where's the student? It's like, no. I'm wearing a name badge. The name badge is actually on me and you still can't learn my name. I just, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. Student to do it. I can't tell you the number of terrible jobs I got as a student. One of which, I think the worst one I got was um, cleaning a seclusion room that somebody had done a dirty protest in with mm. inadequate, I have to look back on it and say now, people, inadequate PPE. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it wasn't I on think, the night shift. <laughs> it's always on, it's always a night shift, isn't it? <laughs> always a night shift. So I think one of the things that is really useful is to think back on your own experiences as students and and learn from that about how to, how to think about Sort of caring for other people. I think you're saying before we got started, so a lot of this is compassion, it's compassion for people. Yeah, and it's we all do these jobs to care for people, mm. and actually, if you can pull it back to those fundamentals, you're going to care for people, care for each other, and care for yourself mm. as well, and make sure actually Definitely. we we walk our why, mm. um, and that we role model what we expect. What the heck does that mean? We walk our why. <laughs> Nikki, I love a fluffy saying. Um, I nodded and then I just thought, Nikki, everyone can see where your eyes. Yeah. You have no idea what you just said. <laughs> we will so, go away. Do you mean we, we I, just tell me. <laughs> so like we, we talk an awful lot about caring for people yeah. and, and thinking about well, why are we doing these things and actually living by your values and, and making sure you're doing what you say you would and you're accountable yeah. to those things. Yeah. making sure you hold yourself to those things. So if I'm going to say, I want to be able to be a good nurse, and what does that look like? I want to be able to care for people and give them a better quality of life. Um, that we do those things. Um, yeah. I think we're so good at, 
are aiming high, we forget to mm. break it down to tangible levels. Mm. And actually, well, what does this mean in reality? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Uh, are you guys open for some questions? There's nothing. There's no maths here. I'm looking at no maths. You're all right. Okay. So we've got a question from Alfonso. Hello, Alfonso. Um, have you observed uh, differences in terms of attrition and retention with ethnic minority and LGBTQ plus students? And is there a, a system in place to support them? Um, Michelle, do you want me to answer that? Yeah, uh, well, I was just going to say, in terms of when we were looking at the data, um, when you think as London as a region, um, in terms of our diversity, um, rates didn't actually differ in comparison to other regions in terms of attrition, um, which some might have had a surprise at, because obviously our rates are higher. But um, in terms of diversity, um, I think diversity, it didn't have an impact in that sense. Um, okay. Sorry, it's gone. Beautifully answered. <laughs> you, Michelle. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that's why we come as a pair. <laughs> I think it works. I think it works. Okay, so we've got another one here. Um, Gabriella Massa, thanks. Very true, Scott. Sadly, I don't know what that was in reference to, but um, I think it's about being in charge. So I remember being in charge and completely terrified. Um, and really interesting, Gabriella goes on to talk about resilience. So resilience is something that's difficult to teach, and mm -hmm. a good matrix of support is needed now. It was COVID times more than ever. So what are your thoughts on resilience as, as a pair? Because we get, we get told that a lot. Nurses need to be more resilient or health staff need to be more resilient. I, M Michelle, do you mind if I answer yeah. first? Is that okay? Yeah, um, I think we use that. The, the resilience word is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. And I think we have to be clear on what it actually means because it doesn't mean mm -hmm. being a robot. And mm -hmm. I think we often say, or if you need to be more resilient. That doesn't mean you need to not have human responses to a situation because mm -hmm. we deal with people at often the most vulnerable points of their life. Of course, mm -hmm. you're going to feel things from that. You, you're going to witness some potentially really difficult stuff. And being resilient doesn't mean not um, responding to those things. Um, it's having the support around you to be able to work through them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think resilience grows i think with experience mm. i've i've mm. definitely felt that in my career um i don't think anyone's perfectly resilient because we're human it's part of mm. part of our life um mm. so i don't think there's any easy answer to it but don't i, I think my response would don't buy into resilience means being robotic mm. spoken like proper mental health nurse absolutely <laughs> In the house. Michelle, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, How do I follow that? <laughs> um, I think it, it's just being true to yourself and also being aware that it's okay to say you're not okay. Um, because I think under that resilience umbrella, it's like, oh, I must do this. Like, I'm a healthcare professional, whether you're a student or qualified. Like, I need to be able to support the patients and everyone else. But actually, you then feel the weight on your own shoulders and then... If you're not okay, how are you then meant to help that patient or your staff member or anyone really? So mm. I think it's about finding a little voice within you just to say, actually, I need that help. Um, mm. I thought I was this resilient person who could take on the world. But actually, as Scott said, everyone's human. Mm. Um, and they will come to a point where you just need to accept the help. And I think it's, as I said, just saying mm. you're not okay, actually. I would prefer to talk to someone or just rather than trying to just fight everything and um, mm. just get on with it. Because I think a lot of it is, oh, I'll just do it. It's just my job. But actually, you've got 
lots of different jobs and you can there's only one of you sometimes so yeah yeah that's absolutely true i'm a huge advocate for clinical supervision as well and i think um moving into a role where i've probably been more exposed to professions um and branches beyond mental health nurse and i feel incredibly privileged as a mental health nurse that i've always had access to Mm. good clinical supervision Mm. and it really really worries me that other professions Mm and other branches don't have access to those things because there's no way I would have got to this point in my career and stayed well and stayed as passionate and focused without the support of the people around me and really good clinical supervisors. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think there's something as well about the types of work we do where um, role modelling is so important to them. And I remember when I was a baby nurse, there were so many nurses. I just wanted to be like them. I just wanted to do what they did. And I was so inspired by them. Um, but also, I think you can learn poor behaviours as well, behaviours that don't really work. And that's something else to bear in mind that, you know, I think when you're a student, you want to look like a, a health professional. And sometimes that means, you know, not showing emotion or not not responding. And there are times and places for that. So I'm not sort of giving a hard and fast rule. But when you've got a systemic problem, mm. it's not acceptable to blame an individual who doesn't thrive in that situation and say, if this person was more resilient, or if they did some breathing exercises, everything would be fine. <laughs> um, if you're understaffed, join a union, um, <laughs> um, do something about that and actually name the problem. So one of the things I think we can all do to help our resilience is actually to be quite critical in our thinking about what we're being told is resilience and what we know is resilience. <laughs> and that bouncing back and asking for help is resilience. But you know, silently becoming a little bit bitter, a bit weird in your humour, and then eventually really not being able to carry on. That's not that's not resilient, and it's not professional. You know, you can't you can't just keep drawing that empty bucket thing. I think if you've got to keep replenishing, that's exactly what you were saying about kind of clinical supervision, which is yeah. so so important. It kind of segues on neatly and sadly into some other work that you guys have been doing around suicide prevention. I wonder if you could mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I've been. Um doing some work developing a national student suicide prevention program as well. Mm. Um, This is something I very started tenderly a couple of years ago, because we know for registered nurses, the the rates of sadly for people uh, committing suicides is really quite high. And I know the the data has recently just come out and it's it's still very much a concern. Mm. Um, So we we know it's an issue, it's not a new new problem. And we really want to work to develop some tangible outcomes which people can mm. can use mm. um, because we know again training is really really hard mm. and there's not enough support around and like Michelle said people sadly all too often don't feel able to say when they're not okay mm. and hold all of this stuff until sadly it it comes to a point where they don't seek support and, and take their own life mm. um, so yeah, it, it's still at the very early stages. Um, it's a it's a national program that I'm working with, and we we really welcome ideas. We want people, mm. families, carers, patients, uh, students as well, mm. who have maybe experienced these things, to to give us ideas of what's also going to be useful and how can we support those things, because mm. um, it's it's not going to go away. Mm. And we have to make sure that, that that support's out there and is accessible at the right time as well. And isn't just lip service. I think we're often too good at making things quite tokenistic and just ticking a box. Well, actually, it needs to be, if we're going to tick a box, it needs to be a very, very good box and make sure the box is as it should be. 
It's an interesting thing. It's like one way of coping is that you imagine um, all the distress is out there and that we're behind this glass and, and it doesn't happen to us. And that's not that's not the case. I, I had caught, um, all through my career, I, um, when I was a student nurse, we lost a, one of my colleagues to suicide. Um, certainly I've lost a colleague since then. And it's something which is omnipresent, isn't it? But often rarely, often rarely talked about because it's so painful to think that someone could be so close to you in terms of working. And you are so close to your teams in terms of working, aren't you? Sometimes you see more than your family if you're doing long, long days and shifts and things like that. And the idea that we would we would miss that in a colleague is something that can fill us with guilt and shame and, and such a lot of distress. Um, and it's not a surprise as well when, you know, you see the kind of way that nurses and particularly nurses, but health professionals generally are being sort of presented, you know, it's kind of like frontline talk, you know, this idea that nurses are angels. That's why they, that's why they don't need to eat. My <laughs> health is, you know, so that stuff is, is really difficult, isn't it? Because on one hand, you're, you're made into something that's not mm-hmm. real. And the other times, you know, the fact that you might need to have extra staff or you might need to go to the loo sometimes or, you know, live outside of the, of the hospital setting those things aren't really well catered for and you can see why people kind of fall down the gap in the middle particularly if they have those really high expectations for themselves and their practice and they feel that they can't tell anybody that they don't feel that way inside yeah it's a really difficult thing so we will tweet out the um links to that and if that's something that you um experience or it's something that um you know about for a colleague um please please do get in touch please reach out please let somebody know People, people won't be angry with you. They won't be disappointed. They um, care about you and they want you to be okay. So please do seek help when you can and support your colleagues when you can. And if you have an idea about how to move that forward as a project, um, we've also got contact details for our guests tonight. So please reach out to them as well. Um, I guess we're getting sort of towards the end of where we're going now, but um, we've got a couple more questions coming in. So let's just go back to those. Oh. Um, Nicole McIntosh, hello. I remember being too quiet um, and afraid to ask questions as a student for fear of being judged. Or scary. <laughs> um, yeah, or, or when people go, you should know this. Like, mm. Well, if the person knew it, they wouldn't ask you. Would they? Be the third year, you should know this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know why people do that. It's just really upsetting and fear, anxiety provoking, isn't it? Should I? <laughs> um, but clearly I don't. So why don't you just tell me? Mm. Um, well, let's find out together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve Thompson says, a good mentor is like gold dust. I was lucky years ago. Um, today, they sometimes don't have enough time to develop into student progression and development, particularly at the moment. It's a very um, it's a good point to say. And then he goes on, uh, exposure, experience, competence, confidence. You've got another T-shirt there, Scott, in the offing. <laughs> and uh, helps build resilience. Um, but to keep quoting it to someone can have that negative effect. I'd say, mm-hmm. absolutely. So when we, it's about how we talk to people when we're teaching and when we're supporting people. You know, you can lift somebody up without making somebody feel stupid. You know, and I think it's it's an interesting one when you see people who 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 teach through things like humiliation and and when yeah. I first started, medics training was terrifying. Like I would work with a consultant, very nice to me, then turn around and just eviscerate some wandering, you know, twenty-year-old kid, and you think. <laughs> Why that all he all that all that person will remember is that they don't like you and you're scary. They won't remember anything that you said to them about this patient's care or anything like that. So there's a lot to be said, I think, about how we how we support people in learning environments. Um, have you guys got anything um that you want to talk to you about in terms of creating a positive learning environment for people? What do you think that looks like? 
Um, I think sometimes listening just to the student voice, um, there's not necessarily enough praise or just in terms of what they are doing well. It's all mm. that, oh, you could do this or you don't know this, as you say, like you should know this. Mm. But actually, sometimes it's just the little things that can just help them forward a bit to say, well done on helping this. Like, mm. I know it, you shouldn't praise everything because they'll just think, oh, yeah, that's great. Don't have to do anything else. This is easy. But mm. actually, I don't think sometimes as educators, how often do we praise these students um mm. so i think it's that creating a positive learning environment um and it's mm. not always the bad points you want to highlight but it's the positive mm. ones that we also want to say well done um mm. because yeah it can go a long way and student voice is one of our things is repair so we've got obviously the national educational survey gonna plug that one so the next survey mm. Um, and we just want to hear from the students because mm. we're here um, as part of our repair roles, but also as a practice educator. Mm. Um, we want to create positive learning environments. So what can we do and what mm. would help in that sense? All right. So that net survey is, say it again, it's the National Educational Survey. Um, right. So we'll be, we'll be tweeting that out. And why should people fill it in? What's in it for them? Um hopefully change like I can't make promises as ever like <laughs> you think oh yeah I'll fill out the survey with a million pounds I can't promise that I'm <laughs> sorry um but the more obviously student voices that we can hear the more actually we can say okay there is this theme of lack of um clinical super supervisors on placement so we can say okay well actually what can we do about that um, mm -hmm. Or is it your induction process that mm -hmm. you didn't have, doesn't exist? Mm -hmm. So the more, obviously, feedback we have from the students, hopefully mm -hmm. moving forward, can then help others um, and you can make a change. Because um, if we aren't aware of it, it's hard mm -hmm. to say what is going well and what isn't. So mm -hmm. you just want to get your voice out there. Absolutely. We've had another tweet uh, from Kath Gamble. Um, and congratulations, Kath. Heard some mm -hmm. brilliant news today. Um, you've been made... Um, RCN fellow. So congratulations to that August person tweeting us. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we're going to be hearing from Kath on um, the 10th of August talking about leadership and change in mental health. But today she's commenting on um, suicide prevention and saying, I hope there's um, an opportunity to tap into Anessa Rebear's work about crafting conversations about suicide in pre-reg nurse education. So absolutely, absolutely. And thanks to, to Anessa for her long-term work on suicide prevention. It's really important. So, as I think we sort of got to the end very quickly there, we've covered some mm. ground as ever, <laughs> Skip, skipped along. Um, we will be we will be putting all the things that we've referred to out on Twitter on the hashtag MHGV, so please do um, have a look at those. But I guess I'd like to come to you guys, I want to say for last words, I've never really been able to find a better th better way of saying this, but just any thoughts you'd like to, to leave people with tonight? Mm. Either one Scott, of you. I'll go if that's it. I'll go first. Um, so I love a, a little saying, as you probably gathered. Um, and I think it's particularly at the moment, I'd encourage people to think and not react. Um, I think we're living in a really quite chaotic world at the moment. And it's so easy to get kind of swept up in all that anxiety and the madness um, mm -hmm. and the constant change, like you said. And actually, you can always take 60 seconds to just stop and think um because whatever that problem or the question that's still going to be there um the instant reactions not always the the most wisest of decisions 
thought there's a story behind that, but I guess we're going to have to dig into that <laughs> off, off camera. <laughs> okay. But you're absolutely right, isn't it? That, that idea that urgency and, and swiftness aren't necessarily your first and most important strategies. You know, taking that second time out is vital. Michelle, what, what about you for, for leaving people with, with something to think about? Um, just especially during the pandemic and things that you're not alone. Um, so mm. it, if it's a student um, and you're struggling, there's lots of perhaps educators, staff, everyone that will want to help. Um, yeah. Obviously, if you're sitting quietly, sometimes we don't know. Um, and it's sometimes thinking, oh, I don't want to ask that question. As they say, no question is a silly question. So mm. someone else is probably thinking it. So you're not alone in that sense. But also as a staff member, as a newly qualified, that pressure and that weight that we all talk about again you won't be alone in that feeling so talk to others um I just think it's so hard to try and fight the world by yourself um mm. and there is so much support out there these days um mm. so just yeah speak up and not alone in that sense you guys are absolute fonts of wisdom. I'm loving this. I feel like, I feel like a regular slot if I'm on the offing. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. So this idea about taking some time out and actually letting people know how you feel and what you need as well. So hopefully you'll um, really enjoy the resources that are out there and get involved in this project if you are a student who is is looking to move forward through their career. Maybe one day you'll be a repair fellow yourself. And also if you're a staff member, thinking about how we can we can do better to support um basically our most important and precious resource which is more of us we need more of us so um absolutely and thank you very much for the people that joined in with questions tonight we'll be circling back um and answering anything that comes up on twitter and facebook over the next day or so and thanks again good night all good night thanks thank you